This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Julia Minson was a competitive ballroom dancer for 15 years. She loved the coordination of steps, the seemingly effortless collaboration between two people. I find it absolutely just like mind-bending to be dancing and knowing exactly what they expect me to do in the moment. It almost felt like telepathy to Julia, knowing what her partner was going to do next, what she would do next. But gliding around the room, inevitably something would interrupt this deep connection. So, you know, you're dancing and then he makes some disapproving sound or what are you doing or what was that or no, we need to do it again. Her partner would get annoyed by a small misstep. She would get upset by his tone. God damn it, (laughs) you know. And then by like third or fourth time within the same, you know, two-hour practice, you're like, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. And they would leave practice upset, each blaming the other. He is too insecure. He is too inexperienced. She is too sensitive. And it wasn't just them. Julia noticed other competitive dancers were also fighting a lot. Julia studies the psychology of disagreement at Harvard University. So the ballroom dancing conflicts soon turned into a research question. How could two people who were so in sync just moments ago suddenly be in complete disagreement? And then she realized that these dancers were not sharing all of the same information. Waltzing through practice spaces with mirrored walls, they would see opposite sides of the room. And so as we pass by a mirror and I see something, by definition he can't see it because his back is to it. It's a simple point, but it was a light bulb moment for Julia. We all see things from our own perspective. Our training, our identities, our backgrounds, our religions, our families. Are we tired? Are we cranky? Are we sleepy? Are we happy? But when we fight, we often forget that we're all coming from different points of view. Julia realized that this issue is at the core of many conflicts, way bigger ones than spats between dance partners. Fits, you know, every disagreement, like, on this planet, right? Julia wanted to know what it would take to have more fruitful arguments. She and her research partner, Mike Yeoman, started studying transcripts of people who didn't shut down, but stayed open to each other when they fought. They analyzed these conversations with computer models to see if there were any patterns. And they found that people who tended to acknowledge what the other person was saying, noticed where they agreed, and used more flexible words like maybe instead of dogmatic words like always or never, those people didn't walk away upset. Julia says at the core of it, the participants made one big fundamental shift. They changed the goal of the conversation. Most of the time when people argue, they are trying to like propel their own argument forward. And the other person's argument is just stuff that's getting in the way. So this is why we interrupt, because you just can't let the other person finish because like, yeah, 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 but hold on, let me tell you how it really is. And here it's really putting a lot of value on very explicitly trying to understand your perspective instead of trying to show that mine is better. And now Julia is using what she has learned in trying to build bridges in major global conflicts. Over the last few years, polarization in the U.S. has reached new heights. People are arguing bitterly about the war between Hamas and Israel, the war between Russia and Ukraine, and we're heading into a presidential election year. Disagreements, new and old, are flaring up between friends, families, and in communities. What have we learned about navigating conflict? 
Can we get better at understanding each other's perspectives? On this episode, we'll hear stories about persuasion, connection, and resolving conflict. First up, let's stick with the research on conflict that was inspired by ballroom dancing. It's now being used to start conversations in a major conflict. Kim Naderfane peterser has this story of hardened fronts, disinformation, and millions of emails. And it starts in Norway at a restaurant in Oslo. So it's Friday night after work in March of 2022. And Fabian Falch, who's this Norwegian tech entrepreneur, He's going out to this restaurant and eating pizza with a few buddies. I don't know if you have uh, the same in the U.S., but we would call it like uh, payday beer. It's like, you know, when you get paid, you go out and grab a beer with your friends. They're having fun. They're joking around. And then the conversation turns to the war in Ukraine, which had started just a week before. It is like such a massive thing, and it's really close. And then they get into censorship. Russia's parliament is in the middle of banning the spread of any public criticism of the war, literally passing laws banning it. They're shutting down access to global media, to independent media, to Twitter, to Facebook, pretty much anything that challenges the state narrative. The government is building a virtual wall that's keeping information out. And all of this makes public discourse about the war, let alone any kind of resistance, basically impossible. But Fabian, who works in tech along with his friends, they know that this wall, it's actually full of holes. Because going around it, it's quite simple. Proxy servers, VPN servers, you know, all these technical things, but still you need to know where to start. These tools are simple, but you do have to know that they exist. And most regular people don't. So one of Fabian's friends asks, how do we change that? How do we get the word out in Russia? And Fabian throws out this idea. Let's send them emails. It's like 140 million people. It shouldn't be that hard of a task. You know, really? if you have 1 million people sending uh, 100 messages each, that's 100 million messages. If you do that every day, you have them in two days. Your goal is to email every single Russian every single day. That would be the way to do it. One beer turns into a few. And what was at one point just a question turns into kind of a dare. Is it actually doable? Can they find the email addresses of 140 million people? Could they message them every day? And if they do all of that, can they get around the spam filters? So that night, some of the guys head back to the office to see if they can do it. And then they don't stop all weekend. The problem is after three days without shower, the smell is like uh, the wardrobe in the gym in high school, you know. (laughs) Not cool. And then at 4 a.m. on Monday morning, the site's up. They call it Mail to RU. And the way that it works is that anybody can visit. Click twice and it opens your personal email account, populates it with like 100 Russian email addresses and a message in Russian. That's their big hack for getting around Russian censorship and spam filters. They're just missing one thing. Oh, the message. Okay, we need a message. Okay, Google Translate this. Okay. (laughs) How would you describe the first email you wrote? It's kind of very simple, you know, very, very direct, very strict. Here's what it said. Dear friend, I'm writing to you to express my concern for the secure future of our children on this planet. Most of the world has condemned Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Ukraine is Please do not believe in Putin's propaganda. Nobody wants to invade Russia. There are ways to receive true information on what's happening. Since Russian authorities have blocked the majority of international resources, you have to make an effort. Follow the instructions and links below. There are many ways to bypass blockage of And Fabian's goal is to send one of these messages to every single Russian every single day, because he hopes that even if every day they keep deleting the emails, that maybe there's one day they stop and read. Let's say you were, yeah, Putin is the right thing. Uh, Everything is just amazing with him. And suddenly your husband or your kid is called out to service. Maybe you would like at that point to be able to get some more news. So now they have the site and they need volunteers. And a few show up, but it's not anywhere close to what they hoped for. And then just a few days later, Fabian gets his own email from the BBC. Suddenly he is all over the news, the radio. And within a week, volunteers have sent 50 million emails. What was at one point just a technical dare is now blowing up. 
And over in Boston, that ballroom researcher who we heard from earlier, Julia Minson, she finds out about it too. One of the postdocs in my lab forwarded me this story, and I read it, and I was like, oh, this is really cool. One reason Julia's interested is because of her work on the psychology of conflict. But there's also a more personal reason. Julia is both Russian and Ukrainian. She's been looking for ways to help ever since the war started, and she thinks this could be it. And then I went on the website, and I read the message. I was like, wow, this needs to be rewritten. <laughs> so one of the things I didn't like about it was that it was really long. Um, and She thinks it's too convoluted, too confusing, and most importantly, way too aggressive. It was like very direct and pretty accusatory. She thought that they had found a technical way to reach Russians, but they weren't reaching them emotionally. And I thought, okay, if I'm looking for some place to plug in, this is definitely a place to start. Julia's research once started with ballroom dancers, but by now it has morphed into an approach to conflict resolution, a technique that she calls conversational receptiveness. And at the heart of it is this. I am very explicitly trying to understand your perspective instead of trying to show that mine is better. So actually try to learn from the other person. Reflect back what you're hearing them say, and then engage with their ideas, looking for places where you overlap. And Julia has spent over a decade trying to understand what makes this kind of communication possible, and what happens when they teach it to people who disagree, like liberals and conservatives. Ask them to talk about politics, and if we teach one side conversational receptiveness, the other side mimics it. How cool, right? And... They like that person better, and they like that person's party better. They kind of warm up to the whole outgroup. Time and again, when they teach people this technique, their studies show that the other person sees them as more reasonable, more thoughtful, sometimes even more persuasive. It kind of just like brings down the level of yelling. So with all of this research behind her, Julia is looking at Fabian's email campaign and the messages, and she's like, okay, if the goal here is to actually get people to engage with what the emails have to say, it has to be rewritten. My theory going in was that if this is going to have any effect, it needs to be kind of a conversation starter, right? It needs to invite people into dialogue and not be yelling at them across the globe. So she reaches out to Fabian and asks if he'd be willing to change it. And I said, perfectly fine. What should I write? <laughs> You're the expert. So she sends him a new version of the email. Here's what it says. Dear friend, I'm writing from abroad to share some information about the ongoing war in Ukraine. I know things in Russia are really hard right now, but I think it's up to regular people like us to restore peace. Below, I describe what I have read and seen on the news and offer resources for getting access to more independent information. I would like to hear your point of view on this conflict. What are the news saying in Russia? What do you think is the solution? I hope to hear from you and get to know your perspective. Respectfully, fill in first name. And Fabian loves it. Much shorter, much more welcoming. And he basically looked at it and he's like, yeah, that's great. Can you do like, you know, 30 more of these? It's <laughs> like, oh. He needs more messages so that they can stay ahead of the spam filters that are now starting to block them. Which means that now Julia needs help writing a bunch of messages that show compassion towards Russians at a moment that not a lot of people are necessarily feeling it. So Julia asks her grandmother. Well, my grandmother was a journalist in Russia and she is... A beautiful writer. Julia's grandmother lives with her. So while I'm at Julia's house, I meet her. My name, I am Ninel Balshina. Everybody calls her Nelly. What do you want to know about me? How are you doing? A life. Yeah. Which is achievement in my age. How old are you? 93. About. Nelly writes a bunch of emails, which makes this tiny woman wearing a sweatshirt that says Atlantic City, become the main voice behind this worldwide email campaign. Hello, 
friend. I don't know you, but I name you friend because it seems to me... Soon, the volunteers send these new, more compassionate emails out. Like, a lot of them. Over 150 million emails in the first six months. And then they wait to see what comes back. I reached out to one of their most prolific email senders, Robert in Kansas, to see what kinds of responses he was getting. Some of the messages he got were encouraging. Yes, I prayed for world peace. Thanks, brother, for your fight. Putin is up. I'm in Russia to be useful at the right time. Everything will be fine. But many responses are angry. Well, why did you dirty Ukrainians come send me this? Filled with rage, awful language, hate. We'll slaughter all of you pagan We'll slaughter every single Ukrainian and cleanse the land of Nazi wickedness. But the most common response is no response at all. Robert has sent thousands of messages, received just a handful of emails back, mostly angry. It all makes Julia wonder how many of these messages are even getting through. Are people reading them? Are they clicking the links? And is her gentle approach even working here? The endless challenge is how do we know that we're making a difference? So Julia comes up with this clever experiment to figure out when people are actually clicking what's in the email, those links. They create three different versions of the email. One is the more abrasive type that Fabian first wrote. One is in Julia's gentle style. And the last is just a link. No further comment. Trying to get some baseline of like how many people just click on things without thinking anything about it. Like it's got no content, it just has a link. And then Julia waits, checking and rechecking the Excel sheet as the numbers roll in. It was like this slow dawning realization accumulated over multiple days of like, yep, okay. That gentle tone used in a third of the messages, this approach that she has spent a decade researching, is not increasing clicks. If anything, it's decreasing clicks. The email that gets opened the most of all three is the one with just a link. Right behind, is Fabian's abrasive email. And in a distant third is Julia's nice, gentle message. It lands with disappointment, certainly, but also, like, I think it really makes a difference doing this for a long time because, you know, the disappointing result is the beginning of the real insight. She keeps turning it over in her mind. Why is it that it worked in all of these U.S. contexts? But why isn't it working here? I think the theory is most powerful in contexts where having an ongoing conversation is important, which is most contexts, right? Most important disagreements are not going to be resolved in one sit down. Right. So like if, you know, whatever, like my kid wants to drop out of college and move to South America and whatever, meditate for a living. Like I'm going to sit her down and I'm going to tell her that she's never going to make a living. That's not going to be a fast conversation. It's not going to be a one and done. (laughs) Right. And so I think what conversational receptiveness does is it makes that conversation tolerable enough that both of us are willing to sit down and have the conversation again and again and again and again and again. It builds a bridge from one conversation to the next, which is a really important goal. But these emails, they're not actually a conversation. It may be because we're sending emails to total strangers And we have no idea what they think. Like, it doesn't work because it doesn't fit. And that's not just because it's an email to a stranger, but also because Russians now have a lot at stake. They can get imprisoned for 15 years for speaking out against the war. There have been reports of soldiers checking people's phones on the street. And Julia knows too well that Russians have been through something like this before. Growing up there in the 80s, you knew of people who told 
an anti-government joke at a dinner party with close friends and were never heard from again. She says her own grandfather was demoted at work for not looking sad enough at Stalin's funeral. That's the place people are coming from. So who knows what they really believe? We're not going to know for decades what Russians really believed at this time. If one side can't talk, then an email is more like a one-way memo, kind of like the millions of flyers that the Allies dropped out of airplanes in World War II, fluttering in the wind, landing in the black box of enemy territory. And that kind of communication requires a very different approach. If you think about typical approaches to online marketing, it's not like, oh, here's a really important, thoughtful piece. You should really consider looking at it. It's like blaring arrows, <laughs> right? Look at this crazy thing the Democrats just said, right? And that's what people click on. But at this point, Julia knows better than to follow her intuition about what will actually get people to click the links in those emails. And unlike in World War II, this time they can actually see who's paying attention. So now Julia has started another experiment. She's gathered messages from a bunch of different researchers from around the world to see who can get the most people to click that link. What we're really hoping for is that, you know, once these findings are published and hopefully replicated, people with a lot more resources than Fabian can take this up. So, you know, so let's give them something that actually works. Meanwhile, Fabian's project is still rolling. Volunteers are still sending messages, about 5,000 a day. It's nowhere near the email a day to every Russian that Fabian once dreamt of. But now knowing that people are clicking that link... For me, it's very rewarding to see that this actually has some point of effect. You know, we sent like 220 million messages. If we have maybe 1% pressing the button, that's, you know, 2.2 million people actually, you know, reading the messages we sent. And I think, okay, that's pretty damn cool. That story was reported by Kim Naderfane peterson with production support from Ellen Horn and Dan Bobkoff. Coming up, when families have major disagreements, some just stop talking and seeing each other. We'll meet a therapist who says that's a bad idea. To stop the conversation, to say that you are outside of the possibility of conversation is to cast people into the outer darkness with just themselves. That's still to come on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about conflict resolution. Shortly after the 2016 U.S. presidential election, marriage and family therapist Bill Doherty got a phone call from two of his colleagues. They wanted to get 10 Hillary Clinton voters and 10 Donald Trump voters together over a weekend in a small town in southwest Ohio. They wanted to see if people could talk to each other and not just uh, about each other or shout at each other. 
And um, they asked me if I would design and facilitate that gathering. I was a bit daunted by it, but thought <laughs> I gotta, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll give it a try. And that was the first time I got involved in anything political. And I honestly thought it would be a one-off, you know, great story. You know, asked me what I did in December 2016, but it was very successful and we kept going. Did you have any idea what you were in for <laughs> in terms of... No. Okay, so no. what were some of the surprises? One of the surprises was how eager people were uh, to to talk to each other and to pull back from the kind of demonization that was going on. When that we asked people why they came, uh, this was South Lebanon, Ohio, small town, they said, we have to stop uh, fighting. We, we have children to raise here and hospitals to maintain and schools to build and we can't do it if we're just fighting each other all the time. So there was a, a really an eagerness to connect and it was very intense but very successful. So it, it was beyond my expectations. This effort eventually became Braver Angels, an organization Bill co-founded to try to depolarize people, to bridge political differences, one workshop at a time. And when Bill is bringing together people who disagree, there are ground rules. It goes this way. We're here to voice our views and to listen to others and not to try to convince other people to change their minds. And so a key one then is that you're, you listen, you say what's on your mind, but you're not here to convert other people to your, your points of view. That's a, a key one. But Bill, that's the whole that's the whole fun of political arguments, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, th that's a different um, that's a different animal when you're having a political argument. If you're coming together with eight reds and eight blues for the purpose of understanding each other beyond stereotypes and seeing if you can possibly find any common ground, then you have to let go of the idea that at the end of this three hours or seven hours that people who differ from you in some fundamental ways are going are to say, well, now that I've heard your brilliance, what was I thinking all these years? And I now, you know, sign me up for your political tribe. It's a completely unrealistic view. Bill says polarization had been on the rise for decades, but social media has made matters way worse. And for many people, those disagreements and conflicts are hitting home. When does it become worrisome to you as a family therapist? Like, what about it makes it a bad thing? Because on some level, you could believe X, I could believe Y, mm -hmm. and that can be okay, right? So sure. why, is, why and when is this a problem? Disagreement uh, or even polarization on issues is uh, a part of a democracy, I mean, just go back to the founders, uh, the size and role of the federal government. This is a continuing argument. The difference with, with today's polarization is what political scientists call affective polarization, emotional, social polarization. So it's not that you and I disagree, one of us is more liberal, one of us is more conservative. It's the level of hostility, uh, the demonization what I call the four horsemen of polarization, <laughs> uh, stereotyping, dismissing, ridiculing, and contempt uh, for uh, even people close to us in our lives who disagree. So you asked me when did I get concerned as a family therapist and not just as a, as a citizen. It's when I saw people cutting off family members, mm -hmm. uh, when I saw people uh, in 25-year marriages, you know, red-blue marriages, that all of a sudden uh, somebody said, if you vote the wrong way at this next election, I'll divorce you. I'd never seen anything like that. And on some level, it seemed like after the 2016 elections, not only did I hear much more about people cutting off family members, in mm -hmm. some circles, it was almost like a mandate. You know, like yeah. you had to cut off Uncle yeah. Fred because yeah. he voted for Trump. Like it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't just something that was okay to do. It was something that you had to do now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, politics has gotten into such moralizing Uh, that people can say, am I compromising myself morally if I relate to Uncle Bob, who voted uh, for the evil one? So yes, I think you're right. It becomes a, a virtuous thing to do, to cut off somebody. 
all of us have a certain boundary of, you know, this is what I can find acceptable and this is what I find absolutely unacceptable in another person, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And when it comes to politics, it seems like those boundaries have really shrunk. But we still need to have some, right? <laughs> so so sure. is it okay to cut people off for certain opinions? My own view is no, mm -hmm. not to cut off a loved one. Now, a, a strictly you know, optional relationship, do I want to hang out with my neighbor who I disagree with so much? Well, you know, fine, that, that's a completely optional thing. But um, my nephew, who is uh, into maybe what I think are very extremist and hateful ideas, I don't believe that we should cut off the person. Now, if he comes to Thanksgiving dinner, he's going to be invited to Thanksgiving dinner, With some ground rules, like you can't be trying to convert people to your point of view, and you you know can't be obnoxious. But I'm never going to not invite him, a family member, to Thanksgiving because of their specific views. Could people see themselves as maybe a door to another point of view or an outstretched hand? You know, when people are very into their own point of view and then others stop talking to them, then mm -hmm. their point will get more and more extreme because they will then only be surrounded by those who agree with them. Exactly. Exactly. To stop the conversation in a democracy, to say that you are outside of the possibility of conversation is to uh, cast people into the outer darkness with just themselves. And on a larger level, if we stop talking to each other, we stop the conversation, where do you go after that? You go to a coercion and violence as at a country level, a countrywide level. Now, that does not mean agreeing. It does not mean allowing people to act badly. But some of us have to be talking to others about these important issues, I think, at all times, or people just float, as I said, into the outer darkness. When you are having political debates with family or friends, he says, instead of trying to convince them that you are right, try connecting with them first. Find something that you agree on and... When the conversations are not going well, when they escalate, when there's a lot of tension, ask yourself, how are you contributing to it? Okay? And what can you do differently? It takes two people to escalate. And if there's a sort of a cardinal principle for this communication where people disagree, it's to connect first and then disagree. Now, this connect first, as opposed to you say up, I say down, you say hot, I say cold, uh, you say liberal, I say conservative, you say affirmative action was, is necessary, and I say it's uh, counter-racism. Acknowledge what you've heard and find something, if you can, to, to agree with. What are some better questions we could ask during these conversations to really get to what does the other person mean and am I understanding them right? Yeah, yeah. When you're having conversations over and over with somebody in your life is something they feel passionately about. One of the great questions is to ask them what led them to their views. In other words, what's the story? What's a life experience? Um, I have an extended family member who has very strong views against affirmative action. And one day I, I got the backstory. He was in law enforcement and believed that uh, a couple of affirmative action hires of colleagues uh, put him at risk of his life because he thought they were not competent and his life was in their hands. Now, that's pretty powerful memory and experience. Again, I'm not talking about the validity of it, but it helped me understand uh, the passion with which he talked about this. So trying to you know, look for moments of curiosity about what, how somebody became more conservative and more liberal. Uh, tell me a story is, is a really nice way to try to understand somebody. How important is it to try to be a better listener? When we're in these situations, a lot of times the other person says four words and then already I'm like 
getting ready to punch back, you know, and I'm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm preparing yes. for my counter argument. So yeah, that's right. how do I listen better and actually hear what they want to say? Yeah, well, this is one of the core skills that we teach in our skills workshops, and that is to first acknowledge what they say, you know, and find something you might agree with. But if you tell yourself, I want to actually understand their point, I want to and have an attitude of curiosity such that I could phrase it back, I could summarize it back, mm-hmm. uh, I could say, if I understand you, this is what you're saying, and be willing to be corrected uh, on that. And so it's the, the attitudinal part is that when they're talking, I want to have an attitude of curiosity and trying to understand uh, before I prepare my response. Uh, such that I could summarize it back. It's hard to do. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do. But here's the other thing. If we actually want to have some influence, and let's face it, we'd like to have some influence on one another. We, we think we've, we see some, we have some form of enlightenment. And, and the truth is, there's a lot of research behind this. You're more apt to be influential when the other person feels like you're listening to them. When they feel heard, I guess, is exactly. what, what we tend to want, ultimately. That's right. That's Not just right. to be right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, and then they don't get their, their dukes up either. So the person who's a good listener is actually a better influencer. Bill Doherty is a professor in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota and a co-founder of Braver Angels. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, researchers say kids need time to play if we want them to learn how to resolve conflicts. It is through play that we learn how to socialize, that we learn when we should stand up for ourselves and for others. That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. Where do we learn how to resolve conflicts? For many of us, it starts in childhood, on the playground, and then in school. Since the pandemic, conflict in schools is on the rise. And now some schools are returning to practices that seemed to be on their way out years ago, suspensions or expulsion. In other words, sending bullies or kids who are violent home. But some experts say this doesn't work in the long run. And instead, they make the case for another solution. Grant Hill is here now to talk more. Hey, Grant. Hi, Mike. And let me ask you a question. Did you ever get in a fight, like a physical fight, when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. We used to fight quite a bit on the playground. So where I used to play, there was not a lot of 
adult supervision and there were a lot of kids and things got Things got ugly. Like, I remember one time I hit a boy over the head with my shovel because oh – I know. Did you just carry around a shovel when you were young just oh. for these situations? <laughs> no. It was – I think I was actually playing in the in the sandbox. It was legit. And <laughs> he got on my nerves and that just seemed like the appropriate response. Did it work? Uh, I don't remember. I, I just remember being really fearful that his mom might call my mom, but she never did. And another time, I remember getting really beaten up by some other kid because I wouldn't let him have a turn on my little scooter. So, yeah, things got pretty bad often. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about this because the playground is so often, you know, where kids start to learn how to socialize and specifically, you know, where there's this unstructured time where kids kind of develop their own rules and ways to deal with conflict. Um, And schools also play an important role in teaching kids how to resolve conflict. But right now, a lot of schools seem overwhelmed with incidents like you've described. Uh, I'm not sure about how common hitting someone over the head with a shovel is, but fights are becoming more common, it seems. And why is that? So experts are saying since the pandemic, there has been this marked uptick in conflict, violent conflict, bad behavior. What are the reasons? Yeah, I was curious about this too. And to find out, I spoke with Trisha Jones. She's a conflict resolution expert who has spent decades working with federal programs trying to bring evidence-based conflict resolution skills into the classroom. And Trisha points to three factors that we know can stifle the development of conflict resolution skills in kids. Those three factors are trauma, technology, and isolation. And COVID put all three walls up at the same time. Any single one would have been really a negative impact. All three together was like a perfect storm. And I would think that this would affect kids differently at different ages, depending on how old they were when the lockdowns happened, when they had to do school from home. That's what Trisha told me and others told me this as well, that COVID was a stressful time for families and, you know, kids, especially younger kids, missed out on this important development opportunity to socialize with other kids their age. That period between five and 10 is when kids actually start thinking about others more than themselves. That's when they start doing perspective taking and learning a sense of empathy and what that means to empathize with somebody else. And it's also where they start figuring out this whole idea of collaboration. This is something that kids really couldn't pick up over Zoom, Tricia says. The way that these muscles are flexed are usually through socialization with peers in person. Mm -hmm. So normally this happens during unstructured moments throughout the school day, like in the hallway a little bit, maybe on the bus. But really, Tricia says, this happens a lot during recess. Recess is not a break from learning. It is learning. And it's absolutely essential. Much of Trisha's work has focused on recess over the years because it's this very unique time for kids when, yes, adults are present, they're around, but they're not telling kids what to do necessarily. Kids make the games, they pick their own groups to play with and play by each other's rules. And that's why this time is so valuable. Yeah, I guess you have to learn how to navigate rejection or you got picked, you didn't get picked. These kids are nice. These kids are not so nice. So there's a lot that kids have to learn. Exactly. And I spoke with William Massey about this. He researches the intersection of play, physical activity and child development at Oregon State University. He's not surprised schools are seeing a rise in conflict following the pandemic you'd have a recess of second and third graders and like teachers and staff and principals beside themselves thinking like these kids are acting like kindergartners, like what's going on? And it's like, well, what's going on is that they are acting like kindergartners because they never got that development that they should have over the last two years. So kids still got math instruction. They still had English class, all the other classes. But this is something they missed out on. Yeah. Regular kind of academics was easier to teach over Zoom than, you know, how to deal with another kid who doesn't want to share their ball. And, you know, William says that 
COVID showed just how dire things could get when kids don't have this unstructured time to socialize with other kids. But ironically, many schools across the country have been trying to eliminate this unstructured time for decades. They've been trying to eliminate recess? Why? Yeah, well, in in the late 90s, funding for public schools started getting tied to test scores and academic performance. So superintendents naturally began to worry that their schools would close if kids did poorly. They started looking for more time to squeeze in academics during the day. And they said, oh, we already have PE on the schedule. Recess seems a little redundant, right? Let's just cut it out. Okay, so phys ed, kids are moving, kids are doing stuff, but it's very structured. We're all doing the same thing, right? And we have a teacher who says, now you're playing volleyball. And when there is conflict, the teacher is going to step in. Exactly. And and recess, yes, you're being active too, but ultimately it serves a completely different function in terms of child development, thanks to this unstructured time during recess. But That's not how superintendents saw it at the time. So many just axed it completely. Some schools started getting built without playgrounds entirely. Other schools only have an asphalt lot where kids can play. Ultimately, since 2001, U.S. schools on average have seen a 60-minute decline in recess time a week, despite what we know about the importance of recess now. Here's William Massey again. We have data that shows that essentially – a higher recess quality and longer recess time helps with the executive functioning. And that's what helps us to reason and make decisions and all of the skills that are included in conflict resolution. What does he mean by quality recess? Like, what does that look like? A few factors go into it. But most importantly, William says that high quality recess means kids have a safe place to play. When he first started studying schools and recess, he was shocked at some of these spaces where kids were, you know, playing ball or, you know, hopscotch and stuff like that. Anything from, you know, broken glass, lighters, used exposed drug needles, used condoms, adults not affiliated with the school walking through doing drugs. So there are some organizations that are trying to bring recess back. One of them is called Playworks. They have actually funded some of Williams' research. Playworks contracts with schools around the country to facilitate more recess breaks in schools with adult supervision. I spoke with Tia Matheson. She's executive director of Playworks Pennsylvania. Playworks, as an organization, is helping kids to build up those socialization muscles. We come in, our coaches are helping to demonstrate by example on how to get a game started how to include kids who look like they want to participate but may be too afraid to actually come in. And by looking at and using that great recess framework, we are including anyone so that their their recess experience is a is one of fun. Playworks provides a number of services with the help of AmeriCorps volunteers mostly, from teacher trainings to in-person recess coaches. But hold on. If there is a recess coach, doesn't that interfere with the whole idea of recess being unstructured and kids just like hanging out doing their own thing? Yeah, that's a criticism that comes up. I spoke with Nancy Bailey about this. She's an education policy researcher and very well known and respected in the field. She says organizations like Playworks are essentially privatizing recess, what little is left of it at least. Getting people to come in and do What I would call watered-down PE is, for me, the fear isn't just recess. It's are they going to replace the PE teacher, you know, at a cheaper rate? You're talking about AmeriCorps volunteers who I'm sure are well-meaning and nice, but they're free. And the nonprofit comes in and makes some money. So what, what do the people at Playwork say about this? Did you ask them? Yeah, Tia Matheson, obviously, she sees it differently. I do think that it's a misunderstanding of what Playworks does, but I also think it's a greater misunderstanding of the current system that our students are learning in. It is misguided to think that children should just go play and that they don't need to have any structure around that or any advocacy 
towards play and recess. Because if we really take a moment to think about when we were children, it is through play, whether it was with our friends outside of our homes or at school, that we learned how to socialize, that we learned when we should stand up for ourselves and for others, when we learned whether or not we could really run as far or as fast as we thought we could or couldn't. It's when we learned the most about ourselves is when we were given the opportunity to socialize and play and have recess with other children. And so to to make small of that is to discount and not fully understand the power of play. It sounds like to some degree, they are teaching kids how to play again. And then hopefully in the long run, during those periods of, of play, they will learn how to resolve conflicts. Exactly. And, you know, it's crucial to remember that this is a process, reintegrating kids into socializing again. Uh, and it's about striking the right balance. You know, you don't want a free-for-all where every kid gets their own shovel. Um, <laughs> but but you also don't want adults stepping in all the time telling them what to do because if that happens, then kids don't learn how to solve these problems for themselves. And ultimately in the real world, you know, that's a tool that they're going to need. Thank you, Grant. Thanks a lot, Mike. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor Lisa in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, we are also reliably informed... That among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, there is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.